0: Welcome everybody to our July 7th uh, Alameda Health Systems Finance Committee meeting. I see some people are still connecting to their audio. Since it's 532, we will begin. Uh, Rana, should we begin with roll call?
1: Yes, please. Um, trustee Blue. Here. Trustee esteem Here trustee fox
2: here
1: trustee friedman
2: here
1: and trustee splendorio here we have a quorum thank
0: you wonderful and uh do we have any objections to the meeting minutes from last month hearing none can i get a motion to approve so moved second second All right. Now that we've got that, should we vote on this?
1: Roll call. Chesty so, Blue, aye. Chesty Steen,
3: aye.
1: Chesty Fox,
3: aye.
1: Chesty Friedman, aye. Chesty Splendoria, aye. Uh, motion passes. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Um, so just before we begin with our chief financial officer report, I will open uh, with a short quote um, from a writer that I admire quite dearly. Uh, The paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. And as we begin this July session of our finance committee with our freshly approved budget, I think it is important that we all remember to continue to have thinking minds and open hearts. Uh, We have entered into uh, this Alameda Health System with fresh leadership this year. And it is important that we continue to examine the path we're on and the road we are taking. So with that, I will pass this microphone to our CFO, Kim Miranda
4: all right let me share my screen thank you for that everybody see that okay yes all right so this is the uh, may financial report Uh, and i'll start with the uh, volumes i can get it to advance here Okay, so um, you look at the acute days and discharges and census, our variance is pretty consistent with year to date. Um, And as a reminder, we did not attempt to budget um, lower volumes due to COVID. So uh, basically, this variance uh, is the COVID variance, if you will. up until last month, we were uh, picking up and picking up, but in the acute setting, it's, it's pretty much leveled out in May. Um, there were some highlights. So ED visits were down 14% instead of 21%. So those picked up. Traumas picked up quite a bit. That's good to see for Alameda. Um, our surgeries are lower than they are year to date. So it was a pretty slow month uh, in regard to, to surgeries. Going down to skilled nursing, our census was lower. That was driven by beds being out of service. We had roof repairs at Parkbridge and South Shore. So we had a total of actually 11 beds out at Park Bridge, not all because of the roof. We also had Uh, We still have COVID isolation rooms there and some complex patients, but basically 11 beds were down, four at South Shore for the roof, and uh, two at Alameda subacute because of seismic work, and those will actually be out until October. So we are gonna struggle with the lower census here in the skilled nursing facility. Um, In regard to clinic visits, we look pretty strong. Just wanna remind everybody that this includes vaccine visits. Vaccine visits make up most of the variants in the month of May. It does not make up all of the variants here year to date. It's about 21,000 of those were vaccine visits. The rest were really being, uh, you know, the uh, telehealth and video visits being available to patients and improving access. So this is the highlight slide. Our net income was a loss of 4.3, so we were 2.5 behind budget. This is um, unfortunately pretty consistent with how we've been running, uh, 34.1 for the year, off 35.4, and then EBITDA is earnings before interest depreciation and amortization, which is what we say is cash flow. Uh, So we we had a negative cash flow of 2.9 or negative 16.8 year to date, which is year to date 44 or 45 million off of budget. So the details of that are uh, in the next few slides. The first one is uh, the net patient service revenue, just this first section here. Uh, Just wanna point out our gross charges are actually off 3.7% and 8.6 year to date but our charges are not down as much as our volumes. I mentioned uh, like in the key... Correlate more, but with um, EPIC, I think, uh, and that is helping us. On the net patient service front, we're at a collection ratio of 16.4, consistent with budget. We're not quite achieving the budget volume or budget net revenue percent of 16.6. However, a big part of that relates to uh, the contract strategy. And we're gonna have a presentation from the Wilshire Group today on how we're doing on achieving our strategy. So I won't take away their thunder. Um, There's also the behavioral health contract. And we did just finish uh, negotiating that with the county. It will be retroactive to July of last year, and it will end up um, increasing net revenue 12.5 million. So we're actually going to beat our target this year. The next slide is the other revenue highlights. Um, Down here, the big variances are are right here. I just want to point out the Medi-Cal waiver. Uh, many of you will remember we've been talking about that the last couple of months. The FY12 has come due, and the total we owe on it is 34.6 million. Um, we did a true up, which was a positive 500. So we had overestimated our liability slightly. I, I think on 34.6 million being off um, half a million is pretty close. Um, But we will pay 13.1 million in July. You'll see that on the cash flow slide. Um, But I just wanted to point out that we were pretty close on our estimate for that year. Uh, The next line is Measure A. We trued up Measure A. Really great news there. Um, I got the uh, Measure A report on June 24th through May. We've received 111.2 million. Our total budget for the year is 117.7. So it looks like we're going to be able to even pick up a little more money next month, maybe another 4 million or so. So, um, good news on that. Supplemental funds. We had quite a few things come through at the end, towards the end of the year here. The biggest ones are GME. We did get additional funding. So that was good to see 2.5 million. Hospital fee varies quite a bit, and we did not budget for that. So that's uh, an additional 2.5. Those are the two big drivers there. So moving on to the expense highlights here. Um, the biggest variance is labor. That you know has not been a change all year long. We'll talk about that in the next slide. Really, other than that, there's not a lot going on here. Um, you might notice purchase services is a negative variance in the month and positive year to date. So that's a little strange. That's being driven off of um, our outside medical services. And they uh, more than offset some of the other expenses we've been seeing for the year. And anything else here? I guess materials and supplies is quite a bit positive. That's driven by the surgeries being off 30%. Um, we did not don't see that year-to-date because we had a lot of COVID-related expenses sitting up here. So um, here is the labor slide, and if you look down at the total being off 12.7 million, that's that's uh, pretty significant for one month. THE TOTAL FOR THE SEIU SETTLEMENT WAS 8.7 ACROSS you know, SEVERAL CATEGORIES. SO THAT IS THE MAJORITY OF WHAT IS DRIVING THIS, this MONTH. Um, TYPICALLY I COMBINE THE SALARIES AND REGISTRY BECAUSE WE DON'T DO A VERY GOOD JOB OF BUDGETING REGISTRY. WE ALWAYS THINK WE'RE GOING TO HIRE PEOPLE AND WE DON'T END UP HIRING THE FOLKS THAT WE THINK WE ARE. SO I USUALLY JUST COMBINE THEM. So that would be the negative, uh, just about $9.8 So the SEIU in in the labor section here is 6.5. Other variances include the uh, LOAs under the new uh, legislation. That was about half a million. We did have severance. We've had some uh, overtime. And then just our wages are up because of the labor settlements. Uh, good news is we did have an offset from paid FTE savings of 314 people during the month. So just to, because uh, people are usually interested on in why we're so far year-to-date, I'll just make a couple comments here. The um, COVID leaves of absence, um, 9.2 million. Uh, the strike is uh, net a net 7.2 severance payments have been 1.4 and then 8.5 of salary on the on the settling the SEIU and the CNA contract. And Then here's the FTE trends. Uh, you can see the historical vacancy gap because we usually budget more than what we actually use. Leave of absences had a total of 195.6 in december so there's quite a big number of people out uh, and then now that that benefit is no longer does not does not apply anymore you can see the return um, interesting to note total paid out on the ahs leave not the new legislative leave um, it was 16.7 million so this is the balance sheet view Uh, Just a couple comments here, our days in AR did go up a little bit, three, um, and I'll show you a slide on that in just a minute. Uh, Other than that, our our net position continues to grow because of the losses. However, our cash flow is doing quite well. Um, Our balance on the line of credit is 20.4 million. That is much better than we projected. So here's the AR slide you can, here's the end of May. You can see we ticked up and unfortunately we're going to tick up through June. Um, The reason for May is not particularly a good one. We did have vacancies in the follow-up team. So this is, uh, this is not what we want to see. It was almost two days. The rest of it was this remit, which is a timing difference. Um, June I'm giving you sort of the 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 warning it's going to go up but it is really driven just by the state the state tries to hold back cash at the end of the year so that they do that every year and so that delay always causes us to have a pickup and on June 30 here's the uh, patient collections this is a great story we're 11 months in and we've already beat all of 2020 and 2019. And 2019, we didn't have COVID, all right? So you can see March, uh, our, our cash dropped right away with COVID volumes dropping. And then we've picked it up, picked it up, picked it up, and just been continuously working that AR. Uh, and now we're gonna uh, beat you know both years with COVID. And here's the NNB forecast. So this is great news to be this low. I, you know, I, I don't think that we're, we've been this low for you know probably decades. <laughs> it's, maybe there's been a year that it has been this low, but um, not many. Uh, and there's reasons for it. You know, I've got them up here so people don't forget. We got advances of money uh, when COVID first started that, that started us out lower. We still haven't paid back. Um, the safety net care pool. Um, we've got much lower than we had planned in capital spending. Um, I've got that on the next slide, but we had thought in the fourth quarter we'd spend 20 million um, and we spent 11.6, so we didn't quite hit our target there. Um, the receipts were stronger than we projected, and um, I did have to move out the capital designation fund from the county. And I'll show you that in just a minute. Um, But here you can see it's ticking up, and I have not applied our budget to this. So if I apply our budget to this, we should be okay and below the NNB next year. But if we have to pay back all those looming recoupments, we will be way over the line. So this is the graphic form of it. Here's the chart form of it. So um, as I mentioned, I moved the capital designation funding from the county out to next June. We have invoiced them for that. Um, I just don't know when we will receive it. So I moved it out and we, we paid or we um, provided the information to pay um, before June 30 another 7 million. So this will go up to 20 million um, next month when I show the slide. I mentioned the FY12 recruitment. We're going to pay that $13 million out in July. We still owe additional 58000000 million. I've moved it to December, but I really don't know when that is going to take place. And I have been in contact with the state. They know we don't have the funds to pay this. They have said, let's just deal with it, you know, one year at a time. So they said I would not need to make any more payments on the FY12 waiver this year um so maybe i could move some out but i think for simplicity i just i just grouped it all there question
3: sure on the balance sheet there is a um working capital line of credit and i think the balance went down for some of the supplemental monies that we received in may we paid it down is that amount included in the nnb
4: everything nets out to the nnb so and then NNB is basically our cash flow. So we don't have any other cash accounts. So we basically just, um, um, you know, it's 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 true cash. Does that answer your question?
3: Well, okay. Let me put the question another way. On the balance sheet, there's no line that says NNB. Oh, it's yeah. So it must be the sum of several
4: lines. No, it's a, it's it's the uh, it's in the long term portion okay and it's in the liability section and i think we call it line of credit and i can find the balance sheet here for you oh, maybe i can't it's last month do you see it there alan or i'm sorry trustee fox
3: uh it's not on my screen at the, at the moment
2: there's oh, the financials yeah
4: Uh, yes, it's the it's called working capital loan and it's in the long term portion okay
3: we,
4: and and basically all of our transactions cash transactions net to that line
3: and that line is equal to the NNB
4: Yes um, they there are some a couple of small variances that they that the county puts against it uh like there's like a ninety-two thousand dollar reserve against it and then there's some capital improvement money and those balances have been there forever but um they're small you know they're small compared to what normally goes on and they've been sitting out there for a while
3: okay okay thank you
4: All right. And so then just because we are doing you know, our line of, our line of credit is so low compared to what we had projected. I put some of the reasons here. So yes, we've got the loss our EBITDA loss this year and I just reminded everybody it includes everything. It's it's all of our cash flows out. We did pay the FYO7 waiver. Or, I'm sorry, 0947 million. Um which is a negative but our patient cash and measure A money is higher. We did receive the COVID relief funding. None of that was budgeted. Um, And then the real big reason is the CapEx. We had planned to spend 60.8 million and we spent 18.2. So that's uh, my presentation, unless anyone has more questions.
0: Thank you very much for that, Kim. I think we are ready to move into Section C2 of our agenda,
4: the Commercial Payer Contracting Strategy Update. All right, and I think we have Sandra, who's going to lead us off here, Sandra Wellington. There she is.
0: Hi, everyone. Good evening. My name is Sandra Wellington, and I'm the Payer Relations Manager here at Alameda Health System. And I provide operational support and uh, to our revenue cycle and payer contracting functions and serve as the liaison between the health system and our contracted network, payer network. Uh, I Over the last year or so, I've been working with Chancellor and supporting Chancellor's efforts with our contracting strategy here at Alameda Health System. And today, um, we're here to give you all an update on the progress toward that contracting effort for our commercial Uh, payer network. So with that, I'd like to go ahead and turn it over to Ellen Parsons, who's here um, to go over that update.
5: Thank you, you, Sandra. Thank you for the uh, introduction. Uh, We've been working with Alameda Health System over the the last six months um, in terms of identifying payer contracting opportunities on the commercial side. Um, the commercial uh, contract side is an area where we can uh, increase reimbursement uh, unlike other government payers. So Sandra just talked a little bit about the operations support, um, what's required uh, for these contracts, what needs to be put in place. Uh, She provides uh, any and all operational infrastructure so that Uh, If there are questions on these contracts or there are questions on the rates for these contracts, she is that go-to person. What I'd like to do is review the contracting strategy and goals that we've developed. I'd like to talk a little bit about the work um, that we've done in the operations area. We've identified um a number of areas of improvements um, we've made some infrastructure support changes and i'd like to review those with you and then what i'm also going to turn turn to is hospital and physician health plan agreements uh, the ones that we're specifically working on the current status and timeline and timeline excuse me and projections um, kim anything you want to add there or should i just go ahead oh. Please go ahead. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so these are the managed care strategy and goals that we've set for ourselves for the project. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, some of the Alameda Health System facilities are contracted and some are not. Um, so one of our goals is to improve patient and physician satisfaction by becoming an in network hospital system. And currently, uh, the system receives Numerous patient and physician complaints as a non-contracted provider. Uh, it becomes very difficult for the hospital to get paid as a non-contracted provider. We kind of go to the, the bottom of the barrel, if you will, in terms of uh, getting payments from these health plans because we really don't have uh, any presence. We don't have a person we can connect with or contact with Um we, we want to contract with all of the large commercial payers to be in network. That will reduce our administrative burden, it will hopefully increase elective admissions, uh, and also provide us with some uh, more favorable rates. Uh, Many of these contracts have not been renegotiated for the past few years. So we really think there's an opportunity for improvement. The other thing is, is that uh, one of our goals was to reduce outside legal expense to obtain payments as a non-contracted provider. What happens here, as I mentioned earlier, is that if you're not contracted with a plan, um, they will delay payments and frequently Uh, Alameda has to retain outside legal counsel to get those payments. And quite frankly, um, in many cases, it's only a percentage of what we should have been paid. Um, We also want to negotiate market competitive rates uh, for the current health plan agreements and to the extent possible, preserve the trauma rates at Highland Hospital, since that is a unique service that we provide. Uh, We're working to establish market-based contracts for the physicians and uh, benchmark those rates to Medicare. Because we work with a lot of clients in California, we've got a pretty good idea of what those market rates are. We actually did a study for Alameda Health System last year uh, to show where Alameda compared to other hospitals in the market Uh, and they were below from a market competitive uh, standpoint. Um, And then um, we need to make sure that all of the hospitals are compensated in accordance with negotiated rates for the contract. So uh, you'll see when I get to the operational uh, infrastructure, um, some of the things that we've done there um, in in terms of maximizing that opportunity. So under operations improvement, One of the things that we identified as we started modeling uh, some of our payer agreements was uh, some underpayments. Uh, We had a trauma code of 681 versus 682. 681 is for a more what I'll call a heavy-duty trauma case, and that was not included. It was an error in the payer contract. So even if we were submitting it for payment, we weren't being paid. Uh, And we uh, have solved that problem. Uh, That was addressed last October. So the correct revenue code has now been added so we can be paid correctly. But the potential revenue recovery going back two years is an estimated uh, $5 million. Uh, That project is in process now. The other thing that we did is we worked with the business intelligent group, and you'll see later in the presentation that we have to model the financial impact of every single contract that we do and every single contract um, by hospital. Uh, So this took a fair amount of time because of the recent conversion to Epic. We wanted to make sure we had a clean um, data set, and I'll be showing you a little bit more on that on the next page. Uh, the other thing is that for all of these contracts, they require a legal review, and we've put a project management timeline in place so that that process is moving ahead smoothly. Because uh, at this point, we are going to be negotiating or in the process of negotiating uh, eight to 10 different contracts. I'll stop for questions there before I go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, so, uh, as you all know, uh, you are a safety net provider. Um, you provide a large number of services to Medicare, Medi-Cal, and other government payers. Um, you've got Medi-Cal managed care as well as straight Medi-Cal being paid for by the state. So, the the piece of the pie that I'm looking at is the commercial or the uh, insurance population. That um, only represents about 7% of your total annual revenue. Um, and we are looking for a $7 million improvement over a three-year period. One of the things that we wanna make sure of is when we negotiate an agreement, it's not for one year, it's not for two years, That typically it's for three years. That way you get the benefit. Um, one uh, health plan that we're working on right now, we have just finalized the rate increases over a three-year period. This just gives you an idea of the revenue pickup, uh, for year one, 5.4, year two, 4.2, year three, 4.2 for approximately $650,000 in, um, additional revenue. Um, there were several, uh, key points in terms of the contract, um, things that, that we look at, uh, when we negotiate these, uh, they had one stay, one day stay language, um, which would pay a limited amount for every case that was only a one day stay. We were able to remove that. Uh, We maintained the outpatient fee structure at a percent of charges and did not move to a fixed fee schedule. And we're able to preserve the trauma at 90% of billed. This next slide uh, is fairly complicated and I'm not going to go through it in detail, but I can certainly answer questions. This is um, the same sample pair that was on the previous slide, and what you'll see here is uh, Alameda, San Leandro, Highland, um, and um, you'll and John George is not included in this because it's a psychiatric facility. And what we've done is developed a model um, specific to inpatient and outpatient. We typically assume the same utilization or volume uh, so that we can figure out exactly what the revenue pickup is for each and every individual hospital. We also try to target our costs at 150% um, cost coverage. That is pretty much anything in excess of 150 is market market standard. So you'll see here inpatient, I'm looking at Alameda inpatient and outpatient, you'll see the total number of cases that's based on current volume. You'll see the total charges, you'll see the current rates and you'll see the cost coverage. Um, You'll also be able to see um, for all of the hospitals down at the bottom of the slide, uh, what we believe that incremental revenue to be. Question? Yes, go ahead, please. Um, where this
3: contract was, uh, had us being paid, has us being paid as a percentage of charges. I think it was 90% for trauma. Yes. Is there, is there some kind of a ceiling on how much we can raise our, our charge prices? Uh,
5: yeah, I, that's a great question. And Kim and I have talked about this a lot. One of the things. Um, that we would like to do is build the increases into the rates, bake them into the rates, rather than relying upon an overall aggregate um, charge master increase. So, uh, if you if you rely on your charge master and you just increase the charges, it it only helps those contracts that are a percentage of bill, and what it doesn't do. Is factor into consideration that you want your rates built into the contract itself and not use kind of what I'll call an outside variable uh, to make up that difference. Um, Kim, do you want to expand on that for the group?
4: I just, uh, yeah, because I mean, we if we raise our, our rates, you know, 5, 10, you know, percent, we're just going to be way out of market. With our charges. So, uh, one of the, the things that we do each year, we use a, a software called Craneware and we benchmark ourselves to other hospitals. And we want to make sure that we are, that our, our pricing makes sense and is consistent. And if we were just to build in the, you know, um, uh, CDM increases on, on these contracts, we would constantly be. Uh, pushing against those limits on our rates, and I know historically we we did do quite a bit of that because I've got the 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 history, but we're really trying not to do that. So uh, we did do a price increase that was that was uh, moderate of four um, percent this year. Last year was like less than two, um, and I have to say that probably I would have raised it more like four last year, but I we didn't even have our contracts put together, so. You know a lot of work has taken place with um, the engagement with Chancellor to build all of this and to even give our um, revenue cycle folks uh, a template which uh, we're going to talk about here in another minute but we didn't have any of that put together Uh, so this has really been quite the journey and we've all been learning Uh, but our strategy really is to try not to to we want to build the, the increases into the rates and not rely right. on the CDM. Right. The uh, other thing.
5: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Follow up question.
3: Um, since we have such a low volume of commercial uh, commercial business, um, and and it seems like therefore we're not a very important player to the to the commercial plans, you know, they don't need us to sell their plans in our market. What leverage do we have over the commercial insurers in our negotiations with them?
5: Well, that's, that's a, a, great, that's a question. Great, great question. Um, we actually have more than you think. Um, the trauma is a, is a service uh, that all of the health plans use. Um, And uh, they have been, you know, accessing that trauma service as a non-contracted provider. Uh, They would like to be contracted, uh, as would we. Um, The other thing is, is that you have a fair amount of leverage because you have, you know, a number of different systems in your network. Um, The other thing is, is that payers, and I want to go back to a. Uh, charge master point in a minute but payers also uh, are paying Sutter affiliated hospitals dignity affiliated hospitals um, as, you know I I can tell you astronomic um, pricing and they're breaking the bank and payers are very interested in looking at another provider that does have the facilities available to service their members. Um, and with some of the improvements in the facilities and now many of the physicians being under the Alameda Health System uh, network, um, you know, we think that we will become a lot more popular. I wanted to go back to the CDM question because the other thing that the payers are doing is they're asking to put CDM limiters on the contract. So, you know, they're coming back and saying, okay, you know, you can't raise your charges more than 8%. Uh, if you do, there would be an offset to your rates. Um, it, it becomes rather complicated. Um, there are some larger plans uh, that say, well, you can only have a 1% increase. Um, so we're mindful of that uh, when we set our um
3: our charge master increases. So just to, 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 I'll shut up after this one last point. So it seems like if we are a potential money saver or low cost alternative for the commercial plans, then for our long range strategic planning, wouldn't it be true that it would help us financially to, to develop and improve those services that uh, the commercial yeah. plans at some point would say, hey, this is an acceptable quality level service that we can start to tell some of our commercially insured, some of our members that they can't get this CT scan at Sutter or at at, at, uh, uh, Dignity Health or at Mm -hmm. Valley Care. They got to get it in at a county hospital. Is that something that would you agree with that?
5: Yeah, I I mean, and and case in point, uh, we did uh, the contracting for uh, several years, many years, at Santa Clara Valley. Uh, And we were able to leverage our rates because they had a brand new hospital facility. Uh, They had a great burn program, had a great rehab program. They also had a collaborative program with Kaiser. Uh, So they were doing cabbages and casts. Those services, such as a cabbage CAS, a number of different cardiac-type procedures are um, where payers would be interested. The other area, and I know that you're looking at this already, is outpatient infusion uh, for cancer care um, is something that the payers are very interested in. Um, Another program uh, that uh, Alameda can start participating in, in are some of the centers of excellence programs if you do set up those services there's the cancer care program there's the cardiac program uh, there's a bariatric program so there are a number of opportunities um, that tie in with this particular strategy.
0: Thank you, Trustee Fox, for your thoughtful questions, as always. Um, I have a question about why we are not including John George. You said because it's psychiatric, but oh, doesn't this, that give us also a special?
5: Yes, this this payer um, doesn't contract for uh, psychiatric services. They have a carve-out, uh, and the carve-out um, is uh, Optum. So we are negotiating directly with Optum for John George, but this contract is just for acute care services. That's why.
0: Okay. Will we get to see at some point what it looks like for John George potentially? Uh, I don't see. A strategic initiative?
4: Yeah, I don't see why not. Kim? Yeah, we just typically in a public setting don't talk about a particular rate for one payer. We just kind of blend it
0: yeah no i know that's the sample that was offered previously but i would like to hear how we're going to optimize john george not the payer
5: yeah well the interesting thing about john george is you're heavily impacted right now at john george uh and there are specific site plans magellan optum uh bhn beacon uh that are interested in John George, um, and are, you know, paying, um, plans. And it's going to be tough because you're so highly impacted right now. You have one of the few locked units around. And as we all know, um, there are very, very limited services, not only for patients who have financial difficulty, but even for patients who can actually pay, um, and you know we could have a whole discussion on that topic, um, and our costs are high too. I mean that's and that's the costs funny. and the costs are high for the services because right now John George you provide you know a lot of the crisis intervention, a lot of those patients coming in through the ER as opposed to um, you know office visits you know with mental health providers. Um, so that would also be part of the strategy. Um, moving on, I want to be sensitive to the time. Um, one of the things that we put together is uh, as part of our operations improvement, and Kim alluded to this earlier, is a rate matrix. This rate matrix, um, we've implemented a system wide rate matrix for all of the hospitals at AHS. So we now have uh, in one place all of the rates that be, are being paid by all of the health plans for each individual facility. So it supports the charge master language. It supports the pricing structure. It allows staff to identify underpayments in terms of, oh, this is what they should have been paid, but they were only paid this. Um, It also is a resource for revenue cycle and Epic for contract build, because once this information gets loaded into Epic, and that is a project that we are starting on in August, then they will be able to look at expected versus actual payment. So if there's an underpayment, unlike that one that I uh, mentioned earlier in the presentation, they'll be able to find it right away uh, and be able to figure out, well, why are we not being paid in accordance with the contract terms? Um, it also is going to be a behind the scene resource for pricing transparency and patient estimates um, in addition, the rate matrix also provides some timely filing information for the business office staff, and now it's in one place. All of the information is there. Uh, we take responsibility for every time a contract is updated or modified of updating the rate matrix, and uh, Sandra makes sure that it gets distributed uh, and that staff are educated on its use.
4: Uh, the- I just want to add when when Sandra provided that to the revenue cycle team, they were so excited. I, it, it, throughout the whole finance team, everybody was talking about it. Wow, look at this! We can actually go to one place and find out this information. So, it was really received well. They were they were dancing. They were actually <laughs> dancing. Uh,
5: this uh, is a sample rate matrix um, for a pair. Uh, you'll see the inpatient rates. These are made up. Um, but I wanted you to see uh, what the staff sees. You have a medical surgical rate, an ICU rate, a subacute rate. All of these contracts are different. All of the rates are different. Uh, so it has to be QC'd and maintained um, constantly to make sure there are no errors. Uh, let me give you, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and give you an update on the um, where we are in terms of our hospital physician negotiations. Bright Health Plan is a new plan in the market. They have a PPO commercial product and a Medicare Advantage product in California. Uh, Members will start enrolling in 2022. We are the exclusive provider in Alameda County. Um, We uh, have agreed and signed the hospital agreement and we are finalizing the uh, physician agreement as we speak. Um, when we look at a new health plan, we look at tangible net equity. We make sure they're financially solvent. Many uh, hospitals have gotten themselves into situations by contracting with a new plan only to find out um, that they go bankrupt. Vitality um, is a plan that recently went bankrupt in California. Um, United Healthcare, that contract is complete, uh, it will be effective August 1. Um, we've projected what the increase is going to be and trauma at 90% tri west is complete. Uh, It includes active military dependents and some retirees. Uh, The rate is not negotiable, it's 100% of the Medicare standard rate. And we are finalizing the rate for the physician group um, as we speak. Uh, some of the other health plans that we're working on right now: Anthem, which is the uh, largest commercial provider in the area; Blue Shield, uh, as well as Healthnet, Aetna, Signet, and other plans uh, as appropriate. Those are the uh, those are the main ones. I put a timeline in here. Um, What we are trying to do is match up our hospital contracts with our physician contracts. If we've got a hospital agreement, we need to make sure we have a corresponding physician agreement. Uh, So you can see kind of our our timelines uh, through December of this year in terms of getting these completed. Um, And then you'll see the same thing, uh, the timeline for the physicians. Let me talk about the physician um, contracting strategy. Um, Health plans typically pay physicians um, based on a percentage of Medicare. Sometimes, if you look at United, for example, their um, fee schedule mirrors Medicare 100%. So if they're paying you 150% on their fee schedule, it actually equates to 150% of Medicare. But some of the others... Modify uh, their fee schedules a little bit. So they'll say, "Oh, well, we pay you, you know, 100 percent of Medicare, or we pay you 150 percent of Medicare." Well, if you accept their ski, their fee schedule and say, "Okay, great, I'll take your fee schedule," um, actually, uh, you have to be paid 167 percent of the Blue Shield fee schedule. To get 150%. So it's it's a little game that they play. Aetna, for example, 84%. Their fee schedule equates to 84% of Medicare. So if I want to get 150% of Medicare, which is, which is, might be my target, I have to negotiate 179% of Medicare for, uh, for Aetna.
6: Ellen, this is Taffy Ket. I'm one of the trustees and a physician here. Can you uh, advise me how the physician contract negotiations are working in the setting of our heterogeneous uh, contracted groups on, on, under Alameda Health System? As you might know, there's we have some UCSF doctors, we have East Bay Medical Group doctors, we have uh, yeah. some who are in individual contracting groups. So, how do you uh, use a strategy to pool, pool them all together when they're from disparate groups? How does that work?
5: Okay, so so the way that it works is when you submit a claim on the physician side, um, you are building you are billing under the Alameda Health System System 10. Got so it. as as you know, each physician has their own unique NPI. So and actually, we were on a call today with uh, the physician billing staff just to make sure that it's going to be clean. Um, so as long as you put in a TIN, the correct tin for Alameda Health System, and you have the physician's NPI number, um, the claim should be paid to Alameda Health System. Now that physician, as you said, might be at you know UCSF or one of the children's hospitals. As long as the TIN goes in with the NPI, you're fine. Um, okay. The other thing that we do is we take the physician roster, which has now about you know 750 physicians, um, and as part of the credentialing process, um, all all of the physicians have to be credentialed with the health plan. So let's say there's a physician who's at Alameda who's also at Stanford, and let's say they've already been credentialed by United, then it usually we usually can get them credentialed very quickly. However, some physicians may not have any agreements with health plans. Um, And the credentialing process can take six to nine months by the plans. And that's a problem because if you bring a physician on board and they aren't properly credentialed with the health plan, you don't get paid. So we are trying to make sure as part of this whole process that the plans have the rosters, they have the CAQH numbers, they have the NPI numbers, they have the AHS tax ID, uh, so they can get credentialed quickly. Um, We're also talking about, uh, this is a side conversation, about being delegated for credentialing, which means the system does their own credentialing, and that um, accelerates the credentialing process with the health plan. That might take a month. So it does mitigate the risk a little bit by bringing physicians on who aren't credentialed with the plan. Does that answer your question?
7: Yeah, that's very complete. I appreciate it.
5: Okay. Um, that's the, the presentation. I did include in an appendix um, just to give you an idea of so all of the contracts that we're currently contracted with and the contracts that we are negotiating. Uh, The ones that are in um, red are the contracts that we are uh, looking at uh, and potentially renegotiating uh, now. So with that, I will uh, stop and take any questions. I don't know where we are in the time.
0: Do we have any questions in the audience? Ellen, do you mind just dropping the screen share? And thank you so much for this presentation and for your comprehensive answers to our questions. You are welcome. Uh, Thank you, Ellen. Any further questions, yeah. And thank you, Sandra, for helping to bring this forward. We've had a lot of inquiry about uh, strategy and bringing in commercial payers over the last few months. So this is... Very timely and good information. Thank you both a great deal. Great. Thank you
5: so for having I, us. Thank you for having us. So I will drop off. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. We will move into the next item of our agenda. I am excited to welcome back Tangerine Brigham, our Chief Administrative Officer of Population Health. So that we can learn about Cal Aim. Thank you so much for joining us again, Tendry. Uh, thank you so
2: much, Trustee. Uh, good evening, Trustees. Uh, let me share my screen. Can you see the presentation? Yes, we can. Okay, wonderful. Let me go to. Okay, great. Um, so uh, let me forward. Um, let me, before I start, say that I am not going to give you the entire uh, 101 on one uh, on CalAIM. Uh, it is a very ambitious program that the state is uh, proposing to implement. And I think uh, in justice to it and to you, Uh, It really needs to be taken in chunks. So I'm really going to focus today on uh, those areas where the state is doing significant work in preparation for its phased uh, implementation. So with that, uh, let me begin. Um, So CalAIM, in many ways, is uh, really an extension of what the state um, has done previously uh, in order to ensure that there's adequate funding uh, in the delivery system and that that delivery system focuses on transforming and delivering high quality care. The state has done that through a n- numerous waivers, uh, be it an 1115 waiver, the most recent one that we're in, or through supplemental funding. And I know that the finance committee has received presentations on both of these uh, in the past. So CalAIM uh, continues that it's uh, over 20 uh, different program proposals and there is a heavy reliance on the state moving much of the administration, um, the focus on quality uh, into managed care systems. Um, And this has been really a transition that the state has started back in, you know, 1993 when it first started its strategic plan for managed care and now we're almost uh, 30 years later and we're seeing how the state is really envisioning how health plans will be central to the delivery of care for the Medi-Cal population. Uh, I want to stress that this educational session does not include financial impacts. I would like to be able to provide that information but Um, The state is still in the process of, number one, applying for federal approval for AIM. Um, So that is an unknown. Uh, Number two, the state has not uh, definitively finalized the rates uh, that it will be providing to health plans. And that, in turn, makes it quite difficult for health plans to determine what rates might be offered to providers. So really, this is really the framework for um, Cal AIM. So, you know, what are the goals for Cal So, the first thing is that Cal recognizes that a lot of the work that the state did under the current Medi Cal uh, 2020 waiver, which has one component called whole person care, which for the first time really recognizes that um, there are a range of social service programs, care management programs, that are critical to managing the healthcare of high-risk individuals, uh, and how to continue the work that began under whole person care. That's really one of the uh, central aims of CalAIM. The second is to take away a lot of the complexity uh, that is embedded in a a large program, such as Medi-Cal that serves upwards to 13 million Californians, and to streamline it and to increase the flexibility. And the third is really around what all of us want to do when we are focused on a healthcare delivery system, improving the quality, reducing health disparities, and really trying to provide incentives that focus on value-based services. And finally, modernizing uh, to the extent possible the infrastructure that is used to deliver services to the population. So um, what are the the initiatives? I'm not going to go through all of these um, but you can see it's everything from um, standardizing enrollment. Um, You'd be surprised to learn that one person uh, might live in Alameda County and might be uh, voluntarily eligible for Medi-Cal managed care and then maybe they move to say uh, San Mateo and that voluntary enrollment into managed care becomes mandatory enrollment. So there is no standardized approach to enrollment in managed care throughout all of the 58 counties and the state is trying to standardize that. The state's looking at payment reform, particularly as it relates uh, to uh, mental health managed care, and drug Medi-Cal, which are overseen by the counties. Uh, And one thing that we're certainly focused on, which is in this uh, lower right-hand corner, regional rates for Medi-Cal managed care plans. Currently today, uh, Medi-Cal managed care plans rates are developed based on their utilization uh, and the cost uh, that they incur in paying providers to deliver services. The state is looking at potentially regional rates. And so how that rate region is defined, uh, what counties are in that region will critically impact uh, potentially the rates that a health plan receives from the state and therefore the rates that the health plan can provide to providers. So that's um, those are some of the initiatives uh, that the state is looking at to really streamline and increase the, their flexibility, quite frankly, around the administration of the program. Next, and this is where we're gonna focus a lot of our attention uh, this evening. Um, these One of the other goals, as I mentioned before, is really focusing on how to manage um, the healthcare risk uh, and improve the health outcomes and health status of those patients whom we know um, either are frequent um, ED users or frequent inpatient uh, users or users of other delivery systems uh, in the social service realm for which we know we need to try to address uh, and help mitigate the social determinants of health for those individuals to improve their potential outcomes. There are a range of efforts here we're really going to focus today on the Two that are highlighted in blue, because those are the ones that the state um, is currently uh, focused on with its health plan partners. I will say on the population health management, which is near and dear to my heart, that's not uh, proposed to be implemented until January of 2023. So uh, more than a year from now. But the enhanced care management and the in lieu of services, the state is marching towards a January 2022 implementation date and they will impact how we deliver services here um, at AHS. One of the things um, we're particularly interested in um, and we will be working with the state and seeing how it proposes to implement it will be um, this category of medical enrollment prior to release from county jail. We really wanna make sure <laughs> Um, that um, the state um, has an opportunity and providers have an opportunity to prepare someone for their release. And that takes on several forms. Currently today, um, that work cannot begin until someone has really been released. And so being able to start that process sooner rather than later so that someone gets onto medi someone gets into managed care, someone knows where their medical home is the minute they get out of jail, it helps with their transition, and so we're really um, interested in um, the state moving forward with this because we think this is
0: really the right direction to go in. Can I ask, Tangerine, is that also going to be the same for people leaving locked facilities where their medical benefits have been deactivated? So you know that requires an act of Congress. <laughs> Truly,
2: it does require an act of Congress um, because there's a federal provision um, around that. Um, Certainly we will um, work to determine if that is in fact uh, possible, but generally because those are federally funded benefits, um, we don't have the ability or the state doesn't have the ability to intervene in that area. What we're trying to do is intervene at least with the state Medi-Cal, which is in fact state um, overseeing at
0: uh, the local level. But when they're leaving a locked unit, it's different. I don't understand why it's different funding if we're talking about Medi-Cal benefits.
2: Um, so you were talking about the actual, um, the medical benefits are in fact, the services that they receive. I thought you were referring to their income maintenance benefit that they lose once they go into a locked benefit
0: So lock no, not their income i mean that's, oh, that's okay. something important also for for people's wellness and social determinants of health but no uh, medical often is oh, yes. when people are in lock care as well yes we would be able to i didn't understand the, the the uh your question but you are correct great so that also falls in line with the county jail piece that's wonderful yeah
1: So uh,
2: what are enhanced care management and in, in lieu of services? Um, first, um, we do some level of, you can think of enhanced care management today. Um, we have a complex care management program, which works with our health plans. It works with our care management team that's overseen uh, by Sheila Laiswa, Uh, It's Lily McRae that oversees our complex care management program. And they use data to really identify those individuals that we believe need additional support above and beyond what would be the support we give So, someone who is, say, discharged from a hospital. These are individuals for whom we know they have frequent hospitalizations or ED visits. And so what we do is we focus on a transition of care strategy that really outlines providing them with comprehensive care management to reduce the potential of readmissions. And so the enhanced care management program that the state is proposing is just that, how to do more of that so that we reduce uh, healthcare costs for that population. Um, and this is a benefit. This would be a new medi benefit for anyone in Medi-Cal across the state. And that's really important because once it's a benefit, that means individuals are entitled to it. That means there has to be sufficient funding from the state to ensure that anyone who meets the eligibility for enhanced care management receives those services. That ECM is juxtaposed to Um, what the state is calling in lieu of services. You can think of in lieu of services as services that um, health plans um, are not required to provide. So it is not a benefit, but it's a service that someone would get um, in lieu of perhaps a benefit. So a good example might be, well, let's uh, say someone was in an inpatient facility, um, but that person could uh, be cared for in a lower level of care, uh, board and care. And so uh, the idea would be to transfer that person to a board and care, or maybe it's to respite, uh, and then ultimately to discharge. That respite facility, that board and care facility, are not actually Medi-Cal benefits they would be provided to that individual in lieu of that person staying in an inpatient bed. Now, we think from a um, right place, right time uh, perspective, having in lieu of services makes sense. You know, if we can take care of someone in a lower cost setting with the same quality outcomes and health outcomes, we want to be able to do that. And so does the state. And so do health plans from a uh, certain perspective, because certainly it is less costly to provide perhaps a board and care facility or respite in place of an inpatient day. And so the idea is, how does the state take this benefit, enhanced care management, and marry it with these in lieu of services? one of the challenges I will say we'll talk about this a little bit later is that because the of services is not a benefit you'll see that I have bolded here the health plans aren't required to provide it but they're strongly encouraged to and so the issue is sort of what are the incentives that are built into the system that would encourage a health plan to provide these in lieu of services many of these in lieu of services are services that are currently being provided in the whole person care program and so because they are currently being provided in whole person care we would like to the full to the fullest extent possible continue them under cal aim if those programs are cost effective and cost efficient it is not guaranteed that that will happen however because of the nature of the in lieu of service, which as I mentioned before, is not a benefit and therefore not required. So I I won't um, go through this slide, you've got it here, it's just the level of care management that we have in our system uh, and that we anticipate that um, should be available in health plans to take care of it, care management needs for their entire population, no matter where they fall along the spectrum. Um, These are the high cost populations, um, high needs populations that will be eligible for enhanced care management. So I mean, it's a a huge uh, swath of the managed care population, people who are homeless, people who frequently use ED, Um, SMI stands for Seriously Mentally Ill, SUD stands for Substance Use Disorder, SED stands for Seriously seriously Emotionally Disturbed um, Individuals. Individuals transitioning into skilled nursing care uh, or people who are being diverted from skilled nursing care. And I spoke to a moment ago, individuals uh, transitioning from incarceration. So um, this is the ILOs list. I, I will tell you um, that um, uh, from the uh, perspectives of health plans, um, these are a lot of services uh, that generally health plans do not provide, um, and so health plans are naturally hesitant about the notion of providing, say, home-based home-based services. Um, about providing housing deposits or housing tenancy or housing navigation services or sobering centers. Um, And so while there are these 14, um, what the state considers to be medically appropriate and cost-effective services, um, uh, it is uh, clear based on our work with our health plan partners, our... uh, discussions with other health plans and with other public hospitals, that hospitals are really reticent to provide all of these. Um, and because it is unclear uh, what funding will be available for these non-benefited services, um, health plans will be very cautious about providing the services and will likely provide very few of these in the beginning so that they can manage their own risks. Uh, so that they ensure, if they are providing a service, that uh, the service is not only needed, but they have the ability to fund that service long term. So,
3: one question for you, Tangerine: Yes, who, on whose order, will an uh, in lieu of service be uh, be undertaken? Will it take a physician's order to say, okay? You know, patient X can be discharged from the acute, but only if they go to board and care because the health plan will say, hey, let's have that patient go home. That's what's happening now. Right. And they have no further
7: costs.
2: Yeah, it will. uh, That's a great question. It will not be based on the provider's perspective. uh, Quite frankly, it'll first be based on what the health plan chooses to offer. So let's just say a health plan chooses to offer respite, which I think we would all agree would be a sound service uh, to provide. Um, The health plan will then contract with a range of respite providers The health plan will determine um, what the admissions um, criteria are to use uh, those particular um, services. The health plan will make that information available to their network and the health plan will have to go through an authorization process with the health plan um, to determine whether or not that individual receives uh, that service from a, a discharge planning process um, I suspect it would be a very uh, uh, strong uh, communication relationship between uh, care management, um, which obviously works very right closely with our physicians uh, to determine what would be the most appropriate uh, post-acute care placement for that patient and make that case to the health plan. Um To to because both ECM and ILOS are new, uh, we know that number one the rate the draft rates that uh, the state has proposed for ECM the health plans have already gone on record indicating that the rates are too low, uh, and uh, that um, as a result the state is I believe planning on providing uh, finalized rates in. September and hopefully those rates uh, will take into account uh, some of the feedback that they're currently currently receiving from the health plans. Um, for but for both ECM and ILS, uh the state is proposing to help incentivize the plans to do this work. They realize that it's not in their wheelhouse. They don't necessarily have the uh, information technology. They may not uh, have a workforce. Um, If we, for example, are trying to do more enhanced care management, we might need more community health outreach workers or more licensed uh, social workers. And so how do we build the capacity to do that? So the state is proposing to incentivize health plans um, and it's allocating dollars for those incentives. Um, I will tell you there is no requirement for the health plans to use any of those incentives to support providers. So these incentives can stay with the health plan. Certainly, um, we are working closely with our uh, public hospitals and other providers uh, to uh, really encourage the state to uh, rethink that strategy because in order to meet uh, many of the incentives and the performance metrics that the state wants for this program, the health plans will have to rely on providers. And so it is really important that if there are incentives developed uh, for capacity building or for existing capacity that it fund uh, those providers that are doing that work on the ground with patients, um, helping them uh, in terms of uh, minimizing and reducing healthcare costs through uh, really uh, focusing on lower levels of care. So uh, the goals of the incentive, you see them right here. They're very consistent with the overall goals of CalAIM that I discussed uh, a moment ago. So I won't spend much time on that. Um, Because this waiver, CalAIM is so complicated, it needs two waivers. (laughs) So the state is actually gonna be applying for two waivers for CalAIM. A 1150 waiver, uh, an extension for five years. And then the state has several waivers for Medi-Cal managed care and for drug Medi-Cal and for mental health Medi-Cal. And so they're proposing to do all of it in under one umbrella waiver, which makes sense uh, in terms of trying to simplify it uh, from a review perspective for CMS. And certainly in terms of uh, aligning data reporting and funding for the various efforts. And um, you see the timeline here. I would just say that we are marching towards uh, January, 2022 uh, for ECM and ILOS, but it's important to recognize that the entire implementation of both of these is over an 18-month period. And I believe uh, my next slide would be sort of what are our activities. Um, we have an internal CalAIM committee that's been meeting. Uh, you know, really started back in 2019 when the state actually first released CalAIM, but had to put it on hold as a result of the pandemic. Uh, We participate in Alameda-wide, county-wide conversations and discussions with our partners, uh, both of the health plant, Alameda Alliance, and Anthem, uh, the county, specifically the Healthcare Services Agency, and uh, the Community Healthcare Network, the clinic uh, partners. Um, We have provided and will continue to provide input to the health plans directly on their planning uh, around ECM and ILS and have been very fortunate that they've asked for our input and we value that partnership. We're tracking obviously everything that's happening at the statewide level, things change um, moment to moment. And we wanna make sure that as those changes occur, we're able to understand them and provide input to them. Uh, We're working with our public hospital association. You know, Once we um, have more detailed analysis, we certainly will do the appropriate financial analyses to make sure um, that we understand what the impact of uh, Cal AIM um, will be and we'll certainly keep you informed and abreast of those activities. Um, so I think that concludes yeah my uh, presentation. I'll take any questions that you may have. I
0: have any questions? It's great, and and that's really what it is. I think it's fantastic, Tendree. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Uh, CalAIM is gonna have a huge impact as it gets implemented over the next few years. And I'm looking forward to the financial analysis uh, when that becomes available. Will do, thank you. Thank you. All right, we are gonna move into the next exciting portion of our agenda which is uh, Section D, Contracts. And I will alert our trustees that these are action items. There are two contracts uh, on the agenda tonight. Uh, D1, which is an agreement with Elsevier for Learning Management Software and Educational Materials, and D2, which is an agreement with Intercon Security Systems. So we will hear from D1, uh, about D1 from, I'll start with Mark Frasky and let him make introductions. How about that? um
8: thank you uh trustee Esteen. I I'm not I'm not sure who to introduce on this to be honest with you um James um or Lorna any any intros you would suggest
9: hey, Mark this is a mod uh I would suggest uh, if I may uh, Ira Holly I, I believe okay. he is here
8: thank you
6: Hello. Um, This is Ira. Um, This is an arrangement under which we obtain educational and training materials that are delivered online. We use them for clinical staff training as well as for non-clinical staff compliance training, which is required annually. So this is essentially a mechanism by which we meet compliance requirements. Um, This is a continuation of a longstanding agreement with Elsevier, the vendor. They are one of the established leaders in their market, and as I understand it, we are quite happy with the services they're providing. Um, That, I say right now, is the essential. Um, The one thing with regards to cost, we were able to negotiate um, an agreement from Elsevier to waive an increase in cost for the first of the two years, the third year, there will be a small, I think 2% increase.
0: Uh, Thank you for that. And, you know, I will make one comment before asking if uh, there are any questions. And that is um, that I'm noticing the timeline on the renewal for this contract is that uh, the proposal, starts on July 30th, uh, which I'm going to assume means that the previous contract is ending around the same time period. And though this may not be a controversial item, I really appreciate the lead time that we have and that we were able to utilize with item D2, uh, which we heard five months before its expiration. Um, And I should have stated it previously, but I would love for that to be a trend for all contracts that they come uh, more than three months in advance, whenever possible to this committee, just in case we have a need for deliberation or additional time. Uh, and I'd like that to just be a part of the record as a request from the chair. Uh, so are there any questions about this El Sevier contract or do we wanna make a motion trustees?
6: I'll make the motion to recommend to the full board approval of this contract or this amendment.
0: I'll second it. Thank you very much, trustees. Uh, Rana, are we ready for a roll call vote? I
1: am ready. Chesty uh, Blue? Aye. Chesty Esteen? Aye. Chesty Fox?
3: Aye.
1: Chesty Friedman? Aye. And Trustee Splendorio, aye. The motion passes.
0: Thank you. All right, and now I will defer to you again, uh, Mr. Brasky, for D two. <laughs>
8: Thank you, Trustee. I'm ready for this. Um, uh, in in your uh, there's an for the RFP um, in your board packet regarding security. We're bringing forward two competitive proposals tonight for your review. Our staff is recommending Intercon based on the quality of their responses within the RFP process. We've provided the opportunity for Intercon and SEIU to work together since our last meeting over the course of the past few weeks. And we have heard at this point that the SEIU CBA that is currently in place with our current vendor, Allied, has not been shared with Intercon. And that Intercon is willing to uphold the CBA agreement for the staff um, that would be part of the work at AHS. Total cost for Intercon with contingency fees is about 32.6 million compared to a Securitas at 43.5 million, which is about a 10.8% different, both with added contingencies. Now, Ahmad Azizi is on the night. Ahmad helped us go through the RFP process, working closely with Amal Amini, who is our director of operations, who really led the RFP process for us. So um, with that, um, there's quite a bit of information in your packet about it, Um, but I'll pause there and I'll just open it up for questions as a way to introduce.
6: I only have some questions. Why is this on the agenda?
0: I'll be happy to answer the question. We heard this at the previous finance committee one month ago, where it was moved to the full board. The full board voted to extend, and now it has come back to our finance committee. If there
6: that's, are any- That's why I remember, but I don't remember the board's direction to come back to the finance.
0: The board's direction was to give more time for USWW and Intercon to come to an agreement.
6: Right, but I don't remember the motion being to come back to finance.
0: Uh, If you'd like to review uh, the minutes from the full board, that's possible. Our board chair happens to be present in his ex officio status and seems ready to share.
6: Yeah, my recollection was that we did direct it to come back to the finance uh, committee, where probably a broader dialogue could happen, this space here, and then to make or not make a recommendation to the full board, where probably subsequent discussion will happen that's my recollection
0: right okay and if well, there we, are well, any questions and any desire to discuss now is the time
6: okay well i don't remember that being the direction but we don't have the minutes so uh, my next question is so mark you just mentioned that you want us to consider I, I, i'm understanding what you want us to do here i always see what's agendized is to, is to consider the intercon now you, but you did mention that you have that maybe you want us to consider two choices the securitas and I, i'm confused oh. as what
8: no, you want here. I, I want, I'm You're
0: on mute. you switched somehow.
8: I'm sorry. Um, I'm recommending Intercon. Okay. Um, number one. Number two, if for whatever reason you choose not to go with Intercon, Securitas was our second choice. And I've just provided that option for you. If you so choose. Um, we need to make a decision tonight and at the next board meeting. We've got two months until our contract with Alliance um, is terminated. So um, I I wanted to make sure that you had an option if you so chose not to go with Intercon.
6: I'm not going to pretend I know anything about public contracting, but the agenda only says to either to approve with intercon it doesn't say or pick somebody else I, I just i just want to make sure that you know this is agendized that if, if somebody wants to choose the other choice the other bidder that we actually have publicly noticed it properly because that's the only thing i see is to agree, approve agreement or or not approve with intercon security but i'll i'll defer to somebody else who knows more than me but
0: no I think I just, you're uh, you're reading the agenda as it is written and has it has been publicly noticed the agenda asked for us to make a decision about the agreement with intercon security systems for provision of security services and that is the decision we are here to make tonight if we should go uh in favor of this decision then there is no other decision to be made and the full board will hear our recommendation as a part of the consent calendar next week If we choose to not vote in favor of this contract, it is important for us to know what the repercussions are and what the next bidder that we will probably uh, have to deliberate on will be, and what that means for the system financially, which is a cost of more than $10 million extra. So with that being said, as fiduciaries and members of this committee, um, we've deliberated, we've discussed, we've heard from both parties, USWW, as well as SEIU. And if we have further questions, we have time now to entertain those questions. Uh, If we do not have further questions, we can make a motion.
3: Question, since we've already voted on this at the last meeting, is it necessary for us to take another vote?
0: I will defer to our legal counsel and I will also say that at the full board meeting we made a decision to bring this back to the finance committee in order to give the parties involved more time to negotiate um so my understanding is that we have to make a vote tonight because this is a whole fresh vote this is an entirely new vote with new information um and i will defer to legal counsel if i said anything incorrectly there i concur so I'm not hearing any uh, questions or comment
10: that are substantial to the matter. Go ahead, Trustee Friedman. Yeah, has anything changed in the proposal? I didn't see that it had. No. Last time.
8: No. No. Answer is no.
10: So that I don't understand why you need a fresh vote if it's exactly the same. We're here. We were said to discuss whether the parties were able to work out something, and what I'm hearing is they were not. Is that that is correct that's the essence of what's going on here that, is, that correct. is the essence yeah the essence is that they did not come to
0: a contractual agreement but those parties do not include ahs those parties were intercon and seiu correct w. correct and what we are here to discuss tonight is whether or not ahs is ready correct. to accept this contract by the lowest bidder and though Uh, AHS is an employer that represents uh, staff that have multiple union contracts. We do not mandate that our vendors uh, offer union representation to our staff or our contracted staff. Um, Bearing that in mind, the, the negotiations between USWW and Intercon, though very important, Are not necessarily the material uh, that drives all of our decision making
11: um trustee esteem yes if i may it's it's james jackson and i i um just wanted to add an editorial comment because what you just said is correct but as i understand it intercon is prepared to um engage with sciu at ahs they are not prepared to engage with SEIU at their other facilities. And so the security staff at AHS would continue to be able to be represented by um, by SEIU, which I think is important. And again, that's within our prayer view, but anything outside of AHS is not. And so I just, again, not disagreeing with you, but just wanted to provide some clarity. And if I've said that wrong, um, Amal or, um, Mark please correct me. No, um, you know, after
8: the vote we would continue to encourage and recommend that Intercon work with SEIU um to come to some kind of agreement together that that goes without saying. And and so just for for the record.
3: Right, question Mark on that. I thought I heard but you know I'm not an expert on labor labor uh, law. I thought I heard that Intercon had agreed to accept the current SEIU contract. Is that,
8: is they, that correct, or did they I had agree? agreed to accept the terms of the our current allied um, vendor um, CBA? Okay, Alan, that, that's what they agreed upon. In but they wanted to see the CBA. And that has not been offered to them. from SCIU. So, so basically, let me just
3: let me try to make sure I understand this right. There is a CBA between our uh, our group of security people. Yes. And uh, SCIU. And SCIU. Yep. Okay. Which has been agreed on by both sides. Yes. So and. Intercon has agreed, basically, that they'll step into the shoes of the current, soon to be former vendor. Yes, and and um, and follow that contract and adhere to it.
8: Yes, and well they haven't seen it, and augment um, the salaries, um, et cetera, per what um, the letter you have received um, said, they have not been able to secure the CBA from SEIU. But they're willing to adhere to it anyway? They're willing to adhere to the terms of the CBA. They've they've written letters to that effect. They've verbally told them to that.
3: Effect. How long in duration does the CBA have to go? I mean, are they ad- willing to adhere to something that's going to be expired in 90 days, or does this have a year to
8: go, or is that or even a relevant question? I, I would ask Ahmad to respond to that,
9: uh, Trustee Foxo. So, um, the uh, so intercom has agreed as, uh, so, as far as we know. Um, they've agreed to the terms. Uh, you know, mostly economic terms. Uh, that's usually what the parties are most uh, 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 mostly concerned about. Uh, in terms of the actual agreement, there is no actual agreement. Uh, uh, part of it is that uh, Intercom wants to see, from what we understand, um, is they want to see the CBA. But uh, from uh, what we understand, is that they've agreed to the economic terms of that CBA.
7: Council, will you say that one more time, please, sir?
9: Yeah. Sure. So, so uh, Intercom has agreed to the economic terms right those are the terms that are most important uh, to uh, uh, to both sides here they have not agreed to the actual cba there's there's a dispute over um, uh, you know Intercon is saying again you know i don't want to, this is a an issue between third parties right it's not an issue between us so i i, I prefer not to get into uh, their issues but but what from what we know is that Intercon um, has agreed to the economic terms. Uh, SEIU is asking them to enter into an agreement that uh, may include sites, a multi employer agreement that uh, includes sites not AHS, from what we know again.
3: So uh, that's the issue. So, a question for you, Ahmad, and also for, I guess, for James. What is the risk to AHS if, at some point down the road, there's a there's a disagreement or there's lack of agreement on terms between Intercom and SCIU or Intercom and our security employees? Is there a risk that there could be a labor stoppage, um, or that we could, uh, on short notice, not have any? Any security
9: services, James? Uh, would you like me to take that? Sure. Or yeah. Mark, yeah. You know, So, yeah. so, so, Alan, uh, I'm sorry, Trustee Fox. So, uh, again, this could go a whole number of ways. Uh, the question I think what you're asking is whether SCIU would strike. That's always on the table, uh, but usually, what happens in these situations is, you know, the uh, board. Uh, makes the award, and lets the two sides uh, bargain and figure it out. that That's sort of what happens. Uh, we generally do not like to enter into that sphere because again, you start getting into this.
3: I'm not uh, saying that, that we, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just wondering, sure, uh, what if there's any particular unusual risk to AHS to go that route to say, okay, we're accepting the contract with intercom. But, but I don't want, you know, are we at risk for something bad happening, you know, in the next 60, 90 days?
8: Alan, it's my understanding um, that Intercon would immediately begin to hire, um, to immediately begin to meet the intent of a start day of September 1st on a parallel track would continue to work with SEIU, but there would be no intent to have gaps in our service.
11: I believe that's correct. But I think uh, to be more directly answering your question, Trustee Fox, a labor action is a possibility. If there is a failure to come to an agreement, then certainly um, the, the security staff could um, walk away, I believe. Um, I think that at that point, Intercon would, it would be imperative that they identify replacement staff um certainly that is the worst case scenario, but I believe were it to come to that, that would be the case.
10: Um no way do I want to pay ten million dollars more for this contract. It's just not fiduciarily responsible. At the same time, I'd be a lot more comfortable moving this forward if SEIU and Intercon had already worked out an agreement. And to me, Uh, Them working out a multi-site agreement is irrelevant to what we need to decide for AHS. But if that's the sticking point with them reaching agreement specifically on AHS, then it is a little bit of our concern. But um, I do not want to um, move forward if there's any chance of working this out between SEIU and Intercon before we make a final agreement. I'm not saying that uh, our purpose is to give SEIU leverage, but at the same time, uh, how many SEIU representative employees do we have?
11: Lorna, can you answer that question, please? About 3,000.
10: Yeah. Okay, 3,000. 3,000 people are our partners, our staff. They provide the lifeblood of our system. And I would mu- be much more comfortable if those 3,000 employees representatives were able to work on an agreement with Intercon so that we are not sort of kicking the can down the road for some kind of labor action that would jeopardize the patient care.
11: Trustee Friedman, I, I appreciate your comments and I don't disagree, but I, I would just offer that Intercon has said, and it's in the packet that you've received, that they will Honor, and they put it in writing. And if they don't honor the word, then we'll deal with that. But they've said in writing that they will honor the current CBA that the security staff have at the Alameda Health System. They've also said that their pay rate will be increased by $4.75 per hour. Um, And again, that's in writing. And so we're prepared to hold them to that. And so by no means are we looking to break the union. I think that they have said that they're going to honor the prior commitment that was made to security staff, and so I believe that the security staff will be made whole based on the commitments that Intercon has made. Were we to delay a decision on this, what it does is it puts us up against the end of the contract with our current vendor, which is Allied, and if we get to the end of that contract and there isn't sufficient runway to make the transition in a, in a timely manner, we're going to have to pay emergent rates to Allied, which could be exorbitant. We don't know what they would charge us, but that's something that we've got to contemplate. And so, I'm concerned about this being pushed out further.
3: Uh, another question: Why is SEIU not making its its contract to, known to Intercom? Do we know? The um,
8: uh, mod, Trustee Fox.
9: Uh, we we don't, I, you know. I'm going to go back to what we uh, I said it a little earlier. This is a uh, is an issue between two third parties. Although of course we consider our labor partners, um, uh, but th- this is sort of um, you know you start going down this road and you start becoming intermediaries or mediators in in, in the middle of this. Um, so uh, yeah. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know what the motivations are of either party. And I don't want to speculate as to what those motivations are.
3: Now one, f- one further question, and that is, sure. is it a true statement that even if uh, our security staff and Intercon are not able to come to an agreement at some time sometime down the road, the the remainder of the three thousand SEIU employees we have would not have cause to strike AHS
9: if that happened.
3: Is that a true statement, I'm on. I believe it is.
9: Uh, uh, Trustee Fox, you might repeating that question. I'm okay. Sorry. Is is it would it be possible
3: that if at, uh, down the road our security staff and Intercon were not able to reach an agreement on length of term, other terms, let's say, besides the economics or anything, would the remainder of the 3,000 employees that work for us who are represented by SEIU and who have a contract directly with us, would they have a cause to strike against us if we didn't get this thing worked out just for the security employees?
9: Uh, Trustee Fox, uh, I have not seen that CBA uh, with the other uh, 3000. Usually there's no strike clauses in those CBAs. Uh, I don't believe, uh, you know, where we're sitting here right now, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe that would be the case.
3: So we're not risking a a, a total SEIU strike? Okay.
8: James and Mark, do you uh, you, do you agree with that? That's um, what Ahmad has written. I mean, we talked about this a little, Trustee Fox, and that's the counsel that we received from Ahmad. So
11: he's consistent with, with that. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, technically I believe that's the right answer. Um, kind of emotionally, I do not want to do anything that's going to even – make them want to strike. I very much want Intercon and SEIU to have meaningful conversations, and I believe that they can. Um, that's not happened so far, and I'm I'm disappointed in that. And I intend to have conversations with both sides personally to try to encourage that to happen. I can't make them do anything, but um, we've had enough labor strife at AHS to last a couple of lifetimes, and I very much want to, to make a different path for us. And so the fact that they perhaps cannot strike to me isn't a satisfactory answer. I, I want them to work together to come to the right conclusion. Okay.
6: All right. Um, the, the only way we're going to move this forward is to move forward. And, um, you know, last month at the the board meeting, the full board, they were supposed to talk to each other. And they, apparently either they have or they haven't. Or, I mean, it doesn't matter to me, uh, but if we push this down the road, we don't know if they're going to talk or not. I I think the right answer here is that's a that's a make the recommendation to the full board. We're going to meet what next week. Let's see if they make a deal. And if and I'm and even if the full board says we approve it, they still have time to make a, a, a deal. Mm-hmm. But if they don't make a deal, we're going to come back here. We're either going to figure out how much it's going to cost us for somebody else or, or the existing. I just want to know that sooner rather than later. So it seems to me. The only thing to do is that I'm going to make a motion to approve recommendation of this agreement that the lowest bid by 25% over the, 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 the competitor and looks like it, it, it'll cost a lot of money. If we are, can't make a deal here and can't and are forced to live with our, our current provider. So I, this is, this is, stu- I mean, this is stupid to me. I, there's one choice here and, Let's just, uh, that's my motion. I would second that. All
0: right, before we get to a roll call vote, is there any public comment?
1: Mr. Stack wanted to
0: speak. Do you still wanna speak? Okay.
7: If, if, if possible.
0: Mr. Um, Stack, you have three minutes.
7: Thank you, trustees. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak. I'm the chief operating officer of Intercon. And I've been working through the discussions with SEIU. I think that your decision to vote is is the appropriate one. Typically what happens is a contract is awarded. Then the two parties understand that they're going to be working together. They come to the table, they negotiate. And then 99.9% of the time they live very happily thereafter. We've had this exact same process happen four different times with SEIU contracts. And once we were actually awarded the contract, the SEIU, who are very reasonable when it comes to, to caring for the personnel and they know who they're gonna be working with, have done standalone collective bargaining agreements. And every time their employees were not only made whole, they were actually enriched with better benefits and uh, work rules that were specific to their site. The master or the multi-employer agreement takes into account events and work rules that are not at ahs that's why we think it's much more appropriate to have one that is a standalone agreement for your facility and for your employees that are or our employees that would be supporting your employees at the facility so i i am very confident that once the contract is awarded that the sciu will understand that yes this is the party that will be working We will be interviewing their members, trying to bring them on, as well as external members. Our goal would be, though, to hire at least 51% of their employees, if not all of them, so that way we can recognize the SCIU and have the agreement in place. We've put that in writing to the union. We are very prepared to do so. If for some reason, which we were not able to come to an agreement, which I do not think will happen, We have over 3000 employees in the state of California, and it would be our responsibility to make sure your facility is safe and secure. Um, Or you have the option as we get closer to the end of September to revoke the contract and then stay with your current provider, which I would hope you would not do. But I'm very confident in the opportunities that I've had to negotiate with SCIU and these other four occurrences that we will have an agreement in place. The only thing that I believe that's holding it up, in my professional opinion, is the fact that there's not a contract awarded to us. Therefore, SCIU, seconds. thank you, SCIU is not even confident that we are going to be the provider they need to negotiate with. Thank you very much.
9: Just, just one, I just one more, if I may, Madam Chair. Uh, yes. I was a little equivocal there uh, in my response. I just took a look at the CBA uh, they have a no strike provision, so no, um, they, they would not. But as James said, you know, we value our labor partners, so I, I hope you don't even get close to that.
0: Yeah, and I'll just make one comment that SCIU is an international organization that has many different uh, locals, ten to one being the local that uh, I am a member of, and that our three thousand workers are a member of. UHW represents. SEIU UHW represents members at Alameda Hospital uh, there are other labor unions that are not SEIU that represent other workers um, so every SEIU affiliate is not the same and does not have uh, is not subject to the same contracts um, now there is a motion on the floor trustees are you ready to vote or are there more questions All right Rana let's take a roll call vote
1: Excellent. So the motion on the floor is to recommend the agreement uh, for intercon to the full board of trustees. Um, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Splendoria.
0: Aye.
1: Motion passes. Thank you.
0: Thank you all very much for the rich and spirited discussion. And this is another reason why I... I think it's very important for us to have contracts as early as possible before their expiration so that we can uh, go through this very appropriate process of thoughtfulness and deliberation. Um, I thank you all for participating in the discussion and answering our questions, Uh, Mr. Fratsky, Mr. Jackson, uh, Mr. Azizi, and for your participation as well, Mr. Stack. Um, That brings us to... The final portion of our agenda tonight, which is committee planning issues and tracking. If there are any items that committee members would like to discuss going further or have education on, as we had a, a spirited and rich discussion about contract strategy and Cal AIM, we can continue to educate ourselves, our staff, and our listening public. Um, if anyone has requests, you can air them tonight or you can send an email to myself, Kim Miranda, or our board clerk. Are there any other issues that we need to be paying attention to tonight that came up? All right. Well then at 7.25, we will close this meeting. Uh, do I have a motion? So move. Is there a second? Thank you for
3: the five minutes.
0: You're very welcome. Everyone have a great night.